Uh, now that we are here and ready to continue to worship our Lord in the reading and the preaching of His Word, would you open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5? If you're not already there, and, and uh, yes, I, uh, Pastor John is not the only one who's forgetful. I also forgot our memory verse. So why don't we uh, do that now also? If you're here in Galatians 5, maybe you have your bookmark, maybe you just see it on the screen, maybe you just have it here in the Scriptures. We're not memorizing something that's not, out of the, not in, the, in the Bible, the Word of God. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Thank you for your patience with me and with us. And, you know, we're, we're here this morning for a worship service, you know, and, and this is nothing that's done up here on a Sunday morning or, or any other time of the week is a performance. <laughs> it's, none of it is ever done uh, to put on a show. This is just worship and sometimes not just, I don't want to say just worship. This is simply <laughs> worship. And uh, so sometimes it just doesn't go... Um, the way that people might expect. Um, but one of, the, one of the consistent pieces of feedback that we get in this body is just that, that this is real, right? This isn't a show. It's not a performance. We're worshiping the Lord. And so sometimes it gets a little messy for us. But we're grateful because God is not a, a God of, of chaos, but of order. And He works. He has His, his purposes fulfilled. He's such a good God. Well, why don't we study these verses together? Galatians 5. And we'll read verses 7 through 12 this morning. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who works in our hearts and minds through it. Father, I pray that we'd grow, that we'd grow more in love with you, that we'd grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would be glorified and praised in his name. Amen. Well, you may remember the story better than the name of the man of Charles, and I'm going to try to say this French name correctly, Blondin. I think that's how you say his name. But in 1859, the story is that he stretched a tightrope a quarter of a mile across Niagara Falls, and he walked across it to the pleasure of the crowd standing there watching. And he walked across it, and he walked across it again, 16 stories high above the falls, back and forth. And people were impressed, but he thought that wasn't quite enough. So he took, to, took it up a notch and climbed up some stilts and walked across the tightrope on stilts. And people were even more impressed. And then he put a bicycle on the tightrope and rode a bicycle across the tightrope, a quarter of a mile across Niagara Falls. Then he walked backwards across the tightrope, but he walked forward and he brought with him a wheelbarrow and he said to the people, now who will jump into the wheelbarrow so I can push them across on the tightrope? Nobody volunteered. <laughs> Even after he had taken a stove, 
strapped it to himself, walked across while making an omelet, walking across the tightrope. He had demonstrated that he was more than capable of going across the tightrope. But when it came to somebody else's life, taking their life into his hand, nobody was willing to do that. Everything was fine and good that he could do it. But suddenly the confidence was gone from anybody if it was their life. What are you confident in? Or maybe the better question is, what do you think that you're confident in? What are we actually confident about? When it comes to everyday things, what do you know without a doubt? And, and how do you tell the difference between what I think I'm sure of and what I'm actually sure of? Are you certain every time you get in a car that you put a seatbelt on and that's going to help protect you in case you get into an accident? You can tell you're confident about something based on what you do, how you act, not just what you say you're confident about. And there are everyday things where that's true. They they don't really have a lot of consequence in our life, but there are eternal things also that matter a great deal. What we're really convinced about in our heart makes us act. If we really believe, for instance, that the Bible is the Word of God, then we're going to read it and study it. We're going to value what it says. We'll even be willing to change what we think to align with what it says, right? With what God says. If we really believe that we're totally dependent on God for everything, for our breath, our food, our water, our clothing, our house, our job, if we're totally dependent and we know that without a shadow of a doubt, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. If we know that He hears us, if we know that He cares about us, if He knows that He can and does answer prayer, we'll pray to Him. But if we don't really believe that, we'll find it difficult to pray. Now, that holds true from the biggest things to the smallest things, but especially in the gospel and our constant struggle of the law creeping in and rule following and all of the alternatives to the gospel that boil down to our efforts, it's either God's grace through faith in Jesus or it's our stuff, our works, our strength. There are two lessons here in Galatians 5 to help us learn this, to reinforce this for us if we've already known this. And the first lesson is in verses 7 to 10. It's that faith, rather than law, requires continual confidence in the Lord and His truth. Continual confidence in the Lord and His truth. Now, some of you are saying, well, that seems pretty obvious. But let's see how this works out. In verse 7, Paul says, you were running well. Now, the Christian life is described in different ways in the New Testament. We saw just in verse 1 the command to stand, stand firm. We know about that command from Ephesians 6 where we're told to put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And and we know that after doing all, we are to stand, and so stand firm, right? We know that command several times in Ephesians 6 and other places. Other times, the Christian life is described as a walk. We're walking, we're denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. So 1 John 2.6 says, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And all of the familiar commands that we're to walk uh, by faith or to walk by the Spirit, walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. So the Christian life is standing firm, and it's a walk. It's also described as wrestling and fighting and striving, but it's also often described as running and running in a race. You remember earlier here in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul had said he was hopeful that he had not been running in vain, 
The Hebrew, uh, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1 says, let us Christians lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, our Christian walk in context here is viewed as a run. Now, when we talk about the Christian life being a walk, we're talking about the totality of it, right? Everything about our Christian walk, our our Christian life. Um, You've heard the expression that people come from all different walks of life. It's inclusive of everything about their life, right? Their background, their career, their positions here and there in society and all that. But when we consider the Christian life as a run, particularly as a run in a race needing endurance, we're talking about an immense amount of energy and dedication that's required in this Christian life, the effort that we put forth. Because the Christian life is not supposed to be a life of laziness or passivity or sitting back doing nothing. It's not a life of ease. There's constant energy called for in the life of the Christian. In fact, all those things that we talked about that the Christian life can be described as, it's never described as sit. (laughs) Just sit. In all of our standing and walking and running and fighting, there is a constant energy. In Philippians 1.27, our manner of life is worthy of the gospel only when we stand firm in one spirit with other believers. That's, that's another part of this Christian life, that we're never, we're never commanded to live this life apart from believers. So we're to stand firm in one spirit with other believers and strive side by side together for the faith of the gospel. And that word strive is labor. It's it's an intense struggle alongside one another. In another passage about walking in a way that's worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And the word eager is the word for making an effort. And there's, a, there's an urgency in that word and that we're maintaining, which is also a very active word. It means protecting and guarding, keeping constant watch. We're to be working, putting forth effort in the unity of the Spirit. Following on the heels of what we read in Hebrews 12, verse 4 says that in our struggle against sin, that's part of the life of a Christian, struggling against sin, It's an intense struggle. In that intense struggle against sin, we have not resisted, another active word, this actively opposing pressure, it's withstanding the pressure. So we have not resisted in our struggling to bloodshed yet. As we struggle against sin, we haven't shed any blood yet. Those are the pictures of the effort involved in being a Christian, the Christian struggle against sin, our intense, great efforts together for the faith of the gospel, the protection of our unity together in the Spirit, and so much more. Now, we've been learning about the absolute uselessness of our own works, our own efforts, even the danger to our souls, but that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to be doing, that there's no effort or energy. Lord willing, we'll see more about that next week. But the Galatians were running well in the faith and in their faith. They were running in a way that was suitable. They were doing it correctly. They, they were putting forth effort in this faith, and they weren't turning to law, and they weren't sitting back doing nothing. They were running the marathon of the Christian life, sometimes with bursts of speed, sometimes slower, but they were been moving forward. How was it that they had been running so well? What, what was making that possible? Well, he says here that they had been obeying the truth but now they're not. The word obeying here is actually, it's an interesting word. It means, it's a word for persuasion, 
for confidence. I'm convinced of the truth, and so I obey it, I follow it, I live it out. They were fully convinced, and they were living it out, and they're running this faith. And what Paul is pointing them to is the understanding that this struggle of a Christian life is in our mind. It's a battle in our mind for what we believe. What are you convinced about? What has persuaded you so that you obey it, you follow it, you abide by it, you live it? Because there's a new persuasion that's come along. Look at verse 8. This persuasion, he says, this new one that's come along that's starting to convince you and you're starting to obey instead, it is not from him who calls you. This word for persuasion is related to the one where we have the word obeying. It's related of being persuaded and convinced, but this word implies deception. You're believing something now that's not right. It's not true. You had the truth. You were convinced. You were obeying. Now something else has convinced you. Do you see how their confidence has shifted? Their persuasion has shifted. And it doesn't come from the one who calls you. The one who calls them is God. This, this new thing doesn't come from God. Instead, it's come from someone who has hindered you, which is the word we have here in verse 7. The word is, is a picture, it's a word picture of cutting in, like a runner. You're, you're running along in your faith, and, so, and a runner comes up alongside you and cuts in and throws you off track. You, you get out of the race. Something happens, and you, you fall away. Well, who was it? Well, it wasn't God. God is the one who, Second Peter 1 says, God is the one who called us. But here he says, calls present tense. He's continually calling us. He's keeping us, and he's drawing us near. You have 1 Thessalonians 2 and, and chapter 5 also. It's, it's funny, if you, if you look at this, God is the one who calls us more often than he's the one who called us in the past. He's constantly with us. He's constantly there. He's constantly persuading and convincing us of himself with his truth, and he never gives up on us. He doesn't change his message, his grace, his truth. He's continually calling but somebody else came in and cut you off. Who was it? Well, it's almost as if in this paragraph, Paul is saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is. We know that it was a group of Judaizers, and they had to have had a leader among them. Maybe Paul knew the leader or, or knew everybody in the group, but the point is there is God and there's anybody else. Who are you going to listen to? What you're doing right now, he's saying to them, is not faith, because it, what you're believing and what you're convinced of, it does not come from God. In fact, it's the opposite of faith. It comes from the opposite of God. Now, it can come from Satan. He's, he's, he's getting across to them. This is not the one who calls you that's giving you this thing that you're convinced about all of a sudden. It can come from human beings in the sinful state, the collective ideas of this fallen world, everything that's under the influence of Satan, but it doesn't matter where it comes from. If it doesn't come from the Lord God, the one who calls you, you don't want it. <laughs> Get rid of it, right? Reject it. Don't be convinced by it or persuaded by it. You're not following Jesus anymore when you follow your own works, your own rules, your efforts. You're following something else. Now, there seems to be a bit of a hesitation among the Galatians that goes along with what we've been reading. There may be in some of you I know there has been in myself. I mean, there's a hesitation here about it's God's grace through faith in Jesus. It's not my works. It's not any of the rules that I follow. The, 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 there's confidence in this that's missing in many of us. And one source of that hesitation may be just an objection to getting, rule, getting rid of rules and laws altogether. You're saying, no, that's not going to work. I can't do that. 
That's never going to work. We'll address that more next week. But another source of hesitation, it just may be in accepting this whole idea of rules in a life and laws that we're following is, it's just not that bad. That's what we can fall into. That's what we believe, that even after all that we've seen about false teaching, of works-based gospel, of works-based sanctification, of all of these things, even after that, even that it cuts us off from Jesus himself, some of us will still downplay the works of the law. Maybe it's, maybe it's bad, but it's, it's just a little bit bad. <laughs> it's just not that bad. You know, works well, work out pretty well for us when people do good things, right? I mean, when they follow rules, they do the good things, they follow laws, it works out well. The end justifies the means becomes the, the, the idea there, right? So we'll encourage some law following and some rules for our own purposes, and we become convinced that that works better than the grace of God working in someone's heart. And we fall for that. And, and that's where we get this warning here in verse 9 where he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now in the Bible, it, leaven is mentioned some 39 times, and every time except once, it's a negative. It's a bad thing. It, it stands in for sin or evil or false teaching. Now, a leavening agent can be different things, but the most common referred to is in, in the Scriptures is yeast. And if you don't know what yeast is, it's actually a fungus that gets into the dough and spreads through the dough, and it, it consumes the sugar and the carbohydrates in the dough. It leaves behind some carbon dioxide that inflates the dough. Uh, experts tell us, in a sense, really, yeast gets in and it spoils the dough. It spoils the food. And it happens really quickly. It doubles in size about every 90 minutes. And it only takes a small amount. If you, if you don't know what a sourdough starter is that, with yeast that makes the dough rise, you can make it yourself. Just put some flour and sugar and water on a counter, and every few days put some more flour and, and water in it, and, and the yeast from the environment just gets into it and starts to work its, its way around the dough. It only takes a small amount, and it happens so quickly. That's the picture here against that argument that, oh, it's just a little bit bad. It's okay to have just a little bit bad in our teaching. It's just not that big of a deal. No, it is. Because look at how yeast works. Look at how leavening works. A false gospel, rule-following gospel that spreads throughout the church works quickly. And it makes its presence felt. And it happens so decisively and so dangerously in our hearts and our souls. The false teaching of the law has got to go. That's what he's getting after here. It's not a little bitty thing. Act quickly. Act decisively. Get convinced of this. Be confident of God's grace at work in the heart of yourself and other believers. Don't try to impose the law. You may have heard of the comparison that Benjamin Franklin made to something like this, where he said that for want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All of this for want of a horseshoe nail. It's just a little thing. It's just a, a little bit, and it just has such great impacts. And this is a very bleak picture, how, how quickly and easily we can fall for things like this. Anything else besides the gospel. We can begin running well, but then someone can cut in on us and throw us off, and it only takes a little bit. And it can work so quickly. We only have to let our guard down for a second, just a split second, and someone can do this. We only have to be impressed by somebody's credentials who's teaching. 
We only have to be enthralled with the flattery that they're giving us just for a minute to get some of that false teaching in, to get some of the works in. There's so many tricks and schemes. I mean, they seem to have such an advantage. How can we fight against that? How can we be prepared for this? Well, I love what Paul says here in verse 10. He uses the same word again, persuaded, convinced. He says, I have confidence in the Lord. And I love that about the ESV, the way that this is translated. Some of the other translations say something like, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, and and I have confidence in the Lord in you. And really, the prepositions in the original show that the confidence that he has is in the Lord, about you, (laughs) about us, about God's people. Paul says, look, you were good when you were confident and you were persuaded, you were obeying the truth, but now you're not. You're following something different. And it's not God, it's not his truth, and it only takes a little bit, but you got it and you bought it. <laughs> and now you're persuaded by something else. But I'm persuaded, he says. I'm confident in the Lord. And there are two areas that he's confident in. It's the believers and those works-based false teachers. So his confidence in the Lord regarding the believers, he says, is that you'll take no other view. The word view, his manner of thought, what, what you're thinking and what you're believing The Lord is going to keep his people safe and secure in our thoughts, in our minds, in our beliefs. We might stumble. (laughs) Again, we talk about how this is a constant struggle for us, even a daily struggle of just defaulting back to law, defaulting back to works. We might stumble a little bit, but he's confident in the Lord that he's going to protect us in our minds. This struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? Paul's not saying, okay, now to fight this battle, go get a sword and go fight. <laughs> go, go, you know, charge after these people. It's what you know. It's what you believe, what you're really believing, what you're really convinced of. Are you convinced? If we're convinced, then how do we live? How you live, what you think, what you say reveals what you're really persuaded by, what you're really convinced of. Paul could be living in absolute despair. He can't go back to Galatia. He really wants to be there with them to help them, to help them to see and to understand, but he can't be. So he says, look, my confidence is in the Lord. It's not in his letter writing capabilities. It's not in his own ministry. He's not saying, I have confidence that you're gonna remember what I told you and and fall back on that. He said, no, confidence is in the Lord. But he's also confident He's persuaded regarding the false teachers. The second part of verse 10 says he's confident that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, again, he probably knows who this is, but he downplays that identity because, again, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what it is. Anything that comes against God's truth, God's truth is going to triumph in the end. But there's an alarming warning here as well. He said he will bear the penalty, whoever's troubling you the one stirring you up in fear and distress. Well, what's the penalty that he's talking about? Well, this word trouble is the same word that he used back in chapter 1, verse 7, when he said there are some who trouble you, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here's what he said. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. That that word anathema cursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, Paul said, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And you remember as we studied that, essentially that just means hell. The false teaching of a wrong gospel that includes my efforts, my works, my anything at all is going to lead to hell. 
That's the penalty that these people are going to, to suffer because they believe this wrong teaching, and a wrong teaching, a wrong gospel will not get us to heaven. Paul's confidence here is in the Lord and in his truth that all of God's people are going to think rightly in their confidence about Jesus and his gospel. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to stumble. We're going we're gonna to get tripped up once in a while. But he says the warning here is there are other people who are trying to do that to us. Don't follow them. Don't be like them. The penalty is severe. That's where it leads. So faith, rather than law obedience, requires a continual confidence. A continual confidence in the Lord and in his truth. That's the first lesson. The second lesson. In number two, in verses 11 and 12, is that faith, rather than law, requires continual clarity in the Lord and in His truth. Continual clarity. Now, evidently, the false teachers had been trying a lot of different schemes in attacking Paul, trying to convince the Galatians that you should believe this instead of what Paul said. Because otherwise, this verse would would just kind of surprise us, and we'd, we'd kind of scratch our heads like, what does this even mean? Apparently, they were saying that, look, Let's not pretend that Paul preaches just God's grace through faith in Jesus. He preaches circumcision too, so we're just not that bad. That's apparently what they were saying to the Galatians. And it could have be because like we said, back in Acts 16, Paul had Timothy circumcised before they went on their missionary journey. They said, see, Paul's okay with circumcision. He's preaching that. But remember Galatians 2 where the question of the gospel itself came up does Titus need to be circumcised so he can be saved? And the clear answer was no. Paul did not preach circumcision as necessary for salvation. And he, don't, he also didn't preach against it like it was some kind of evil deed in any case at all, right? He just said in verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not the flesh. It's not what we do in the flesh. He said the same thing to the Corinthians. He said, if you're already circumcised, don't try to undo it. If you're not, don't get it done. It's unimportant. It doesn't count for anything. In regard to evangelization, making disciples, we can and we should be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of others like Titus did. And again, today, we're not worried about circumcision. Not many of us talk about that. We don't really care whether somebody is or not. That's not important. But maybe in our culture, this can be something that would cause other people to stumble, like avoiding alcohol if we need to for the sake of making disciples or some other thing that, that we have the freedom to do, we can do, but should we, so that we can reach other people? He says here, the reason for that, because we have a message that's very offensive. We have an offensive message. The word here is the word for scandalous. It's offensive. It causes people to stumble over it and reject it. Kind of like that beeping that's happening. <laughs> Some people are saying, I'm stumbling over this beeping, and I can't keep listening. <laughs> but he says, look, he's already said, look how, look how pure and holy the law is. But it condemns us, and so we stumble over it. We reject it. We say no to God's law. The gospel does the same thing. It is our salvation. It is the good news of Christ on the cross who died for us and rose again. But it becomes scandalous to us. We stumble over it, because, and then we reject it. And it's not the fault of the law. It's not the fault of the cross. It's not either one of those. That is the destructive effect of sin on us. God's law and the cross and the gospel, it's all pure and good and holy, but it becomes disgusting to people. It becomes just horrible and offensive 
Because God's law condemns us and the gospel reveals our helplessness, our dependence on God to be forgiven. People find that very revolting. This is an offensive message that we carry around. It's offensive to our minds, our thoughts. It's it's offensive to our affections, our feelings, to our desires, our will, our entire being. God teaches us. This is why it's so offensive. God teaches us that we are sinful and therefore his enemies. We're unable to save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. And worse, we don't care. People don't want to fix ourselves. We're sinfully sinful. And the only way for us to be saved from our sins, the consequences of eternal punishment by God, the consequences of strife between people, everything that comes with sin, everything that comes as as the effects of that, the only way for us to be saved from any and all of that is for Jesus to do it for us. We can't fix it because our sin is so bad that God himself has to fix it. The remedy was the cross. And you look at the cross and it's bloody and it's cruel, it's gruesome, it's excruciatingly painful for Jesus and shameful, all that he experienced. The weight of our sin revealed by God's law crushed Jesus before God. This shows us how great our sin is, how far broken and stained and ruined and destroyed we are before God. In fact, when he saves us, he has to literally recreate us from within, like start over on the inside in the regeneration of the Holy Spirit when we're saved. To be told that you're that messed up, (laughs) to be told that you're that broken, well, that's offensive to people, right? I mean, to be told that you're sinful in every area, in modern terms, we would say that's abusive or traumatizing, right? We're supposed to be affirming one another. We're supposed to be patting each other on the back and saying how wonderful you are and how special and great you are. And before God, he knows each one of us. We are special to him, of course. But our sin has made us his enemies. The the quality even of our goodness is wrecked by our sin before God. And Jesus is the only answer to make us what we were meant to be. And here's another offensive part of this message. Because what we were meant to be is not what we think we might want to be, autonomous, powerful lords of our own little kingdom, where we get to think what we want and do what we want. We were meant to be worshipers of God. We were meant to live for the great glory of the great God of this universe, not ourselves. So this is why it's so offensive, because even if a person said, okay, I'm bad and I need some help to get fixed... (laughs) You know, I need, to, I need help to be changed so I can be better. He wouldn't want the better. We don't want the better because the better is God's intended purpose for us to leave ourselves behind and to focus on him. Even many people who make a profession of belief and faith in Jesus turn to him so they can get a problem fixed. You know, whatever that problem might be, whatever I feel that problem might be. But then I want to be able to go do what I want. This message is so offensive because it has so little to do with us. You may have read or heard what Jonathan Edwards said a long time ago, and it's right on. He said, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) Even the result of our salvation is not up to me. I can't do it. God does it in us and through us and for us because we can't. But even if you could contribute to something, if you could, if you could put something in line with your salvation, if you could make yourself a little bit holier, well, you know what? The offense is removed. Look, look what I did. Look, I did something. I contributed something. 
This isn't so offensive. That's nowhere near as offensive as you can't. Give up that. Repent of that. Believe. But we have to have this clarity in our Lord and in his gospel. We need the clarity of the truth proclaimed and understood and believed and heard and lived out. And it becomes so clear to us that anything forward or anything added to it spoils what we hear. It's like leaven. It gets in and it just spoils the gospel. And we reject it outright with prejudice. We hear prejudice as a bad thing so often. In this case, it's okay. It means don't even try to come back with that. Don't even come around with that nonsense. This is the pure and true gospel. This is what I hold to. Everything else is anathema. It's cursed. It's from hell and it goes to hell. Any other gospel. It's that kind of urgency. It's that kind of importance and clarity that leads Paul to say what he says in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, this is the word for destroying you in your faith. That's what this does. I wish they would emasculate themselves. In other versions of the Bible, if you have a different version, it may say mutilate cut themselves off, the NET, the New English translation, even just says castrate themselves. There were priests of the goddess Sibylle nearby in a cult known as the Gali, uh, related to this area, the Galatians, the, the Gali, but in their devotion to Sibylle, that's what they would do for their goddess. And Paul says these guys that are coming alongside, these Judaizers that are coming alongside, they're, they're trying to show you their devotion and they're so consumed with that particular area. <laughs> Why stop with circumcision? If a little bit proves your devotion, how much more do with the whole thing? That's the idea. He says, I just wish they would. Now, people get upset at Paul for saying this. It's like, Paul, come on, this is kind of grotesque, isn't it? So is the law as part of our salvation. That's what he's getting across. But Paul, this is, this is uncalled for. So are your efforts to save yourself. That's what he's trying to drive home to us. Our efforts, our works are not even worthless. They're harmful. They're damaging. He's not flying off the handle in rage. He's not saying he's going to go do that to somebody. He's just saying, I wish that they would. Do we have this level of clarity regarding the danger of the law coming in as our method for righteousness in any way? Do we have this level of clarity? When we hear something that teaches us wrongly about Jesus, something that doesn't align with the gospel, our responsibility to correctly run well, do we have this level of clarity? I love how that beeping just gets louder sometimes, right? Are we, are we this committed to one another that we could say this? Or we could say what Jesus said in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. Can we say something like that, that Jesus said? Now, we're not advocating violence here. We're, we're not saying let's go out and forcibly make people convert to the Lord. But God forbid we should ever become so polite that we can't bring the offensiveness of the gospel to light on ourselves or those around us. It's not shame on Paul for saying this. It's not shame on Jesus for saying It's shame on us for not taking the gospel this seriously, not seeing it this clearly, how dangerous our efforts are to bring about any kind of righteousness, whether our justification, where we're declared righteous before God, our sanctification, where we're being made more and more righteous into the image of Jesus, or for that matter, our glorification. You know, I've got my checklist. I've got my rules. And that's how I'm going to do it. 
Now, I know that there are many who are wondering, why are we still talking about these things? We've been talking about these things for weeks, even for months, and it's a lot of the same things, and it's a little bit different angles from, you know, from different standpoints, different perspectives, but it's the, you know, we just keep talking about this. It's because the Word of God covers this so extensively, because every time we think we've got it, we don't. We still turn back to it. We still mess up. Some of you have been politely listening, but not really agreeing, not really being convinced and persuaded of this so that you begin to live this way. Some of you have held confirm in your convictions that my rules are good. And this is the answer for me to follow rules, for me to do these things. And you're proud of your rules and you like how it makes you feel and it makes you feel good or it makes you feel better and you don't want to give that up. But this couldn't be more serious or more clear. We understand, of course, rules are needed for children. We've talked about it before, and we'll talk more about it next week, that societies of people need rules and laws. We, we understand all of that. But rules and the law have no place in our justification, our sanctification, or our glorification. The Bible teaches us about the Christian life that we're to put off and we're to put on certain things. And maybe one of the hesitations to believe this has been, okay, if I buy that, that I have to put off my rules, if I have to get rid of the law, then what do I put on in its place? And that's what we'll cover next week, Lord willing. Our application for this week is we need to be confident and clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to be confident in it. Not just that we know it, not just that we say it, but confident and clear, standing firm, striving together, walking securely, running well. We can't do this without the confidence in and the clarity about the gospel, what we believe. So to test this, find one of our children here in our church or one of the children in your life and explain the gospel to a child. Some people say, you know, you haven't really understood something unless you can teach it. Teach it to a child or teach it to your grandmother, some other people say. You can explain it to a grandmother, explain it to a, a, a child, explain it to yourself. <laughs> if we don't really understand until we can teach it, but we need to be clear about it, we need to be confident in it and not in ourselves, not in our own strength. Father, we praise you, Lord, for the strength of who you are. God, you are omnipotent. You are all-powerful all strong and all wise. God, thank you for how you've revealed to us your truth, how you have given us your word, God, so that we can learn and grow. Father, I pray that you would give us greater confidence. Help us to have greater confidence and clarity in what you've said, Lord, so that we can see all of the counterfeits out there. God, it would be so time-consuming to try to figure out all of the counterfeits out there and learn about all of them, but Lord, for us to learn your truth to learn the purity and the goodness and the greatness of the gospel, Lord, helps us to understand that there are false gospels out there. There's wrong teaching out there, and God, we'll be able to identify it if we will just know what you have said and believe confidently what you have said. Lord, I pray that for each person here, for each person who might listen or watch online later. And God, I pray for wisdom to know how to get rid of that squealing. We praise you for our Savior Jesus in his name. Amen.